I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. To get to the truth of the matter on journalism's role in today's chaotic partisan climate, we welcome Lynn Downey, editor of the Washington Post from 1991 to 2008. He worked at the Post for 44 years. He succeeded Ben Bradley as executive editor, and during his tenure, the Post won 25 Pulitzer Prizes, more than any newspaper had won under any one editor. After retiring from the Post, he became a professor of journalism at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication at Arizona State University. It's great to have you, Lynn. You were at the Post during Watergate and then during the Clinton impeachment, and now you're watching another Another impeachment of Donald Trump. How would you compare those three episodes. Right. It's interesting because in some ways, each one was unique, and yet in other ways, you can see some similarities. In Watergate, it obviously was a crime. There was an actual break-in, a burglary, and an actual cover-up with hush money being paid, and the president having knowledge of the cover-up and involvement in the cover-up, as we later found out. Uh, And so that was a very uh, easily understandable crime at the time. But at the same time, the country was evenly divided. I think people forget that now, or weren't around then. Uh, but the country was evenly divided. There were there was half the country never thought that uh, Nixon should be impeached or removed from office uh, because of all the other things he did as president and because they were loyal Republicans. The media was castigated by those people the way it is now. One of the things about the Watergate story, which I was one of the editors on, is that for the first year from all of 1972, Uh, until Walter Cronkite uh, decided that he was interested in the story. But for all of 1972, we were alone in the story. And back then, there was no internet and no cable television. We were not circulated nationally. Uh, And nobody else really picked up on the story. Once the burglary had been reported on, nothing else was really... We were doing all the investigative reporting ourselves. And the, uh, the White House similar to what you see now, was constantly castigating us, attacking Ben Bradley by name, calling him a Kennedy person and an anti-Nixon person and so on, and constantly criticizing our stories. Ron Ziegler at his press briefings you know, almost every day would be castigating the Washington Post stories and saying they were untrue. And so it was a, not a glamorous time, actually, because we felt we were, we were under siege. And that's similar to, what's, to some of what's been going on now. Uh, the difference actually happened when Walter Cronkite, I've, I've talked to Leslie all about this because he, he, he assigned her to find out what this Watergate thing about. Uh, and, and she did. And uh, he got very interested in it. And finally, in uh, late October of 1972, shortly before the election, he devoted, I believe it was the first 18 minutes of the news broadcast, which was unheard of at the time, to Watergate. And he was holding up front pages of the Washington Post. We were literally cheering in the newsroom as he was doing this because we knew we would no longer be alone. And sure enough, the New York Times hired a great investor investigative reporter to compete with us in Watergate. And when he broke his first, he broke the hush money story. That would 
be Cy uh, Hirsch. Hirsch. Uh, Seymour Hirsch, and he broke the hush money story early in 1973, the only time in my 44-year career at the Washington Post when I said, oh, I'm glad we got beat on something. Because first of all, it woke us up again because we got to remember the way to keep going here, you know. Uh, but secondly, because we are no longer alone. And then the rest of the media joined in. So while we continue to do a lot of groundbreaking investigative reporting, we no longer felt we were under siege. Now, what about the Clinton impeachment? Right. That began so much earlier on because after he uh, came to Washington uh, as president, an investigation of a savings and loan in Arkansas that he and Hillary Clinton were involved with. She was actually the lawyer for the savings and loan. They were friends with the owners of the savings and loan, and they owned a real estate project, never became of anything, just a bunch of land that never got developed called Whitewater. Back then, when so many savings and loans failed, the federal government decided to investigate what's going on with these savings and loans. It's so many of them failed, costing taxpayers lots of money. Uh, and so they were investigating that one. While the questions about the savings loan had come up during the campaign, they'd been forgotten. But we, Sue Schmidt, an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, discovered that the federal government had reopened the investigation of that savings loan, including the Clintons' involvement with it. And so we began investigating that. I was an investigative reporter as a young reporter. And it was, investigative reporting was always my number one interest as an editor. And so I drove our coverage of that. And again, we were all alone for quite a while. And there were people, you know, Clinton supporters who I guess thought that for some reason the Washington Post should be a Clinton supporter uh, were aghast at the fact that we kept investigating Whitewater. And then along came the Monica Lewinsky angle after that. Uh, and I remember that night in the newsroom, uh, we knew nothing about Monica Lewinsky. Ken Starr, special counsel, was all focused on Whitewater, and that's what we were covering. A former Washington Post reporter who then went to work for Newsweek, Mike Isikoff, uh, was contacted by these people in Arkansas who knew a lot about Clinton and women back in Arkansas and constantly pushing for coverage of that. Uh, and they somehow found uh, Linda Tripp and connected Linda Tripp up with uh, Mike Isikoff, and she told him about Monica Lewinsky and told him about the uh, sting that was performed by Ken Starr's people on Monica Lewinsky to discover the relationship with Bill Clinton. But Newsweek was not convinced that they could go with the story. Matt Drudge, the internet guy, uh, found out about it and had this very uh, strange item about that Newsweek was refusing to, uh, to publish a story about something going on with the president and a White House intern. And that's what we knew. So Sue Schmidt was working on this story during the day and managed to find out that indeed the special prosecutor had been authorized to enlarge the investigation to include the fact that the president had lied in a deposition in another case involving another woman about a relationship with a White House intern named Monica Lewinsky. So now it's about, about 10 or 10.30 at night. Our first edition's already gone to press, but we have a website now, which we didn't have before. You might still get something on the website at that hour, as well as all the rest of the editions of the newspaper. So we kept working on it, and our White House reporter somehow got the name of Lewinsky's lawyer, and he still is one of my favorite sources of all time, because when our White House reporter called him on the record, he confirmed the entire story, which probably was not a favor to his client. But I was going to say, he may have right. been a better source than he was a lawyer. <laughs> exactly. She later dumped him. And then when our court reporter managed to find a source with the appellate court judges who were in charge of the special counsel and who had given him permission to enlarge the investigation, 
uh, she got confirmation of that. So all that came together at about 10.30 at night. And I had the pleasure of saying, we're going to go with this story. And we put it on the website and put it in the rest of our edition. So we were the first to report the Monica Lewinsky story. And, and basically, that was what Ken Starr, who was the independent counsel yes. or whatever the title was. Uh, special counsel. Special counsel. I'm not sure, yeah. The impeachable offense that right. he came to the House with was that Bill Clinton had lied in the deposition in a deposition, Correct. a civil right. deposition about Monica Lewinsky. Yes, involving and, another woman's accusations about uh, Bill Clinton's harassing her sexually. And that was what the Republicans in the House insisted on pursuing, and they did right. uh, vote to impeach him. And right. then, of course, he was uh, not removed right. by the Senate, right. which is very much the strategy now right. that we see uh, the Republicans. And so, and so it w- the parties were reversed. It was the Republicans who were pushing for for it, the Democrats who are uh, saying that he did something he shouldn't have done, but not a reason to remove him as president. Very familiar, but with the parties reversed. Andrew? Thanks, Bob. Len, it's so great having you here. For me, it's like, you know, you're the guy who succeeded Brooks Robinson at third base, <laughs> you know, succeeding Ben Bradley. And then the people who had to come after you had big shoes to fill too. You know, nobody wins 25 Pulitzer Prizes. I mean, that's, that's unheard of. Let me ask you about journalism today. We're in a period of polarization like we've probably never seen before. What do you think about the polarization of the news media? Well, as Bob has written some about, a lot of it has to do, first of all, with uh, the proliferation of media. Yeah. Uh, with the social media and everything that's on the internet. And we always had people on the right and the left who were spewing opinions rather than dealing in facts on the radio, in periodicals, in magazines, and so on, but not available to everybody in the whole world uh, the way it is now. And so their audiences are much larger, uh, and it's possible. And your access to media is so great. Bob and I were talking earlier about the fact that, uh, you know, back in, in the early days of my career, Bob's career, uh, there were uh, you know, maybe one predominant newspaper in a town, maybe some secondary ones as well, three broadcast networks, period, and no nationally circulated newspapers at all. Well, the Wall Street Journal, I guess, was. Um, but at a heavy price. Right. Yes, at a heavy price. Right? A heavy subscription price. So yes. It, you know, it wasn't something that everybody read. Right. No, no. It would be business people because they could write it off on their taxes. Yeah. So um, people had in their communities, they had they had a set of facts that everybody could agree on because they could see it. That was, that was all that they had. Now you can find whatever you want to believe in, whether it's true or not, anywhere on the Internet, on your phone, on your computer, anywhere that you want. And as a result, there's less belief in a set of facts that everybody agrees on and more uh, going to your, your different corners for facts. And this has occurred at the same time that there's a political and cultural revolution going on in the country with the big changes in demographics, both by age and by immigration and by race and economic changes going on that have uh, disrupted a lot of people's lives and made them angry. And they're looking for who, who did this to me. Uh, and they're blaming the media as much as, any, as anything else. Do you see it getting better anytime soon? Often, I've been asked ever since the beginning of the Internet Revolution, back when I was running the Post, what's going to happen here? And my answer has always been, I have the slightest idea. Yeah. Because it changes constantly. Just when you, you, know, you go back and you think about what all the conventional wisdom was. At first, the Internet was a place where everything had to be free. 
And as a result, newspapers like The Post waited way too long to charge for digital subscriptions. Because now premium subscription is really what right. works. Right, And, you know, everything's free on the Internet. What about Amazon? You know, I mean, that's where you do yeah. all your shopping now. So they were completely wrong about that. There's no single solution. A lot of flowers are blooming. A lot of weeds are blooming. Some of them are dying off and some, and some new ones are going to come along. You know, I was thinking earlier that, you know, Facebook was uh, like the first thing that really changed everything about the news media, where, where people were getting so much of their news on Facebook, you know, sent to them by friends. Then the, media, the news media would go on Facebook. There's advertising on Facebook uh, that uh, conveys sometimes facts, sometimes falsehoods, and so on. You know, Facebook is now for us, for our people our age, apparently, and somewhat younger. And the young people are into other things. Uh, there's this thing called TikTok out there that I still haven't seen, don't know what it is, but apparently billions of people are now involved with it. Right. Chinese-owned company. Yeah, the Chinese-owned company. So, and, and the Post is involved with TikTok. The Post has a TikTok account. Yeah, apparently it has to. I'm not sure they know what to do with it yeah. yet, but they know right. enough that this could be the next thing in right. journalism. So what's happening in news media at the moment looks like it's twofold to me. One is that certain large news organizations, and particularly the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, have the wherewithal and the audiences to take advantage of all these things that are going on. And they've built much larger audiences internationally even uh, with, with through digital media. Uh, and they're able to charge subscription prices for it and make money that way. And, and they are, they're, they're evolving. Meanwhile, all around the country, there are the local newspapers that people used to depend on and local television news that people depend on where their economic base is eroding rapidly, vanishing in some cases. There are newspapers that have died. There are newspapers that are just shells of themselves. Uh, there are local news broadcasts where the same, where three different stations have the same local news because none of them can afford to have their own local news. So as a result, local news all around the country is disintegrating rapidly, and that's one of my big concerns. What do you say to those who call out the the Washington Post and call it fake news, or the New York Times is fake right. news for that matter. Well, we have the President of the United States to thank for that, and his attacks on the press, I think, have had a really bad impact on people's you know, they views. They call the press the enemy. Yeah, and not just people's views of the press, but people's views of facts. That concerns me more. I mean, there's still, at the same time, it's been bothersome that he's calling the Washington Post fake news. Other people have come to the aid of the Washington Post and the New York Times. They want to subscribe because they, they, they want the truth. They want what they believe is the truth. But the problem is for lots of other people, this makes it difficult for them to decide what is true at all. Yeah, I've always thought that the antidote to Trump calling the Post or the Times fake news is to say, well, Mr. President, look at our ratings. Yes, right. The Post and the Times have high ratings. But nevertheless, they have high subscribership yeah. and going up. Right, but the problem is it's contributed to this polarization of the country. So yes. I just was talking, there's just a new Pew study last week, a huge uh, survey of the country that shows that Democrats have their favorite news organizations right. and Republicans have their favorite news organizations. And then when you get to liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans, it's even more polarized. Right. So the people are really self-selecting depending yes. on where they right. sit. Right. Politically. Right. Let me ask you about this new report you're doing yes. for the Committee uh, for the Protection of Journalists. Yes. You did one during the Obama administration. And so just to put out a spoiler alert to the uh, <laughs> to the current administration, right. if they try to brand this as just another report by the liberal news media, right. you did a blistering yes. report on the press and how the Obama administration handled it. So. Right. I'm not asking you to give the conclusions right, of your report right. yet because I know you're just getting into it. But 
Tell us about this and right. what have you found so well, far? I'm, I'm looking at a lot of the things we're talking about. I'm looking at the impacts of the uh, attacks on the press by the Trump administration in particular, uh, which has had such a great impact on individual reporters who are attacked uh, on social media, uh, who are threatened on social media. It makes it much more unpleasant to be a reporter seeking truth these days uh, because of the attacks by the Trump administration. It's not just the president. We just saw the secretary of state attacking an NPR reporter for telling the truth. A highly respected NPR reporter. highly respected NPR reporter. Mary Louise Kelly. Mary Louise Kelly, who had an agreement with him about uh, what questions she would ask during an interview. Uh, And he got upset about some of the questions and said that that was was a violation of the agreement, when in fact it was just the opposite. He lied about it. There's a lot of that going on. And so I'm looking at the impact of that, but I'm also looking at the impact of that on the general public in exactly the way we've been talking about, about the erosion of people's belief in the truth. I'm looking at the impact on uh, news sources of the fact that first the Obama administration, which I wrote about in the last report, and now the Trump administration have been prosecuting news sources for giving classified information to reporters, to journalists. These are people who see themselves as whistleblowers, who provided this information to people in the media because they thought the government was doing something wrong that needed to be exposed. Uh, But in fact, they were then prosecuted for it. Before the Obama administration, there had been only three prosecutions since World War I under an Espionage Act enacted in 1917 to prevent spying for foreign countries during World War I. Uh, But the the Obama administration prosecuted eight people under that Espionage Act, and the uh, Trump administration is already up to six or so prosecutions under that Espionage Act of news sources. As a result, news sources are afraid to talk to reporters uh, in conventional ways. And so I've been talking to reporters who cover the White House, who cover national security, cover all aspects of government, whose sources will no longer talk to them in a regular phone call or in a regular email, but instead insist on encrypting things by dealing with them on uh, through these things that I didn't even know much about before. Signals. Like signals. Yeah. Signals one of the popular ones. And, uh, and so that's what they have to do now. They're their sources get on signal and things like that, and that's the only way that they'll deal with the press. So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at the impact internationally because the Committee to Protect Journalists is concerned about journalists internationally uh, and their protection. And in a number of countries, the governments are treating journalists far worse, jailing them, killing them, and so on, yes. And they use the same language about fake news that you hear the Trump administration using. So there are academics and protectors of of journalists who see uh, an impact of the Trump administration on these authoritarian regimes around the world. I'm looking into that. Let let me ask you this. When the president says these things about the press is the enemy of the people, the press is the opposition party, does that have an impact on other leaders around the world? Do you see that as something that sort of emboldens right. uh, some of these more authoritarian people who fo- people regimes? Who follow, yeah, people who follow this closely, who I'm now interviewing for this report, believe that that's the case. They see the same, exact same language being used, fake news and so on. Uh, and they do believe it's having an impact. I'm not able to study that directly myself around the world, but the experts that I'm talking to do believe that that's the case. That's what I'll be looking at in the report. As the president continues to accuse members of the media that he disagrees with as being enemies of the people, how do you think reporters should react to that? My successor, Marty Barron at The Post, has said they should do their work. 
Yeah. They should not be defensive about it. They should not try and strike back in some way. Uh, they should certainly should not have that affect their reporting of the president. They should, it should not create any bias in their reporting about the administration. They should just go out there and do their work. And that's what I see most reporters doing. On, you know, when you see these talking heads on cable television, you see a lot of opinions being expressed, not by the working reporters, but by other people that they have on. But the work, working reporters, and I've been talking to lots of them, they say this really, they're, they're not allowing this to, re, to affect their work. It obviously affects the way they do their reporting. They have to deal in these encrypted conversations with Sources. They have to ignore a lot of the a lot of the nasty things that are being said about them in social media, and just do their work. The irony is, unlike the Obama administration, which had such complete control over its officials and would only allow sanctioned interviews with the press, this administration is leaking like a sieve. So it's actually a great time to be a reporter. Yes, and so that's what they're finding. That uh, you, not only are you finding people still in the White House. Uh, who are sources, and in other parts of the government who are sources, but also it's been like a revolving door in the White House. So you've got people, oh, like a man named John Bolton, for example, who when they come <laughs> oh, yeah. out of the White House <laughs> are delighted to tell you, you know, what, they, what they know. And so actually it's been helpful to, to their reporting because of the chaos going on inside the administration. You know, I think you, you bring up an interesting and, and almost an encouraging thought here because as I'm sitting here listening to you talking about this, it just reminds me again, when people have a beef, when people believe inside government and out that somebody screwed them, right. when they're being blamed for something that was not their fault, right. that story is going to get out. Yes. I don't care how many roadblocks yes. you put up to it. It's yes. just human nature. Exactly. And I think uh, that's what keeps journalism alive. And, well, and, 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 and clearly that's what people still believe in the press for, too. And you can see that in public opinion surveys, too. When, you, when you're asked about investigative reporting, people say, yeah, I want that. Oh, yeah, no, I, I don't like these other things they're doing out there. But, yeah, we, we need that. We need that. Do any of the reporters you talk to, are they afraid for their own safety? Yes, sometimes they are. And they won't go into why. They turn to their news organizations for help with that, for security help. And they're just not going to tell me what it's about for good reason. Yeah. But yes, they are. I mean, they're, they're, they, they get threats online. And at these rallies where people are, are yelling and screaming at them and booing them, and one guy ran up into the press area in one of these rallies and started pushing people around. And when he was arrested and started to be taken out of the hall, people were saying, don't do that. Don't take him away. Right. And, and generally, the law enforcement is there to protect the president, not yes. to protect the media. Right. And people don't necessarily realize right. that. Yeah. I mean, when I covered the White House, it was very clear who the Secret Service was there to protect. Oh, of course. You know, and it ain't you. <laughs> yes, of course. You're just along for right. the ride, or, so to speak. Or, or if you get in the way. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, right. right. You, you, you need to stay out of the way <laughs> yeah. and do what they tell you, right. or you're part of collateral damage, yeah, right. I guess. Exactly. What do you think about, this to me is a startling statistic, this is according to Gallup. Yeah. 47% of Americans are engaging right now in some form of news avoidance. 47%, which seems high to me. Right. I know there's always some people yeah. who are engaging in news avoidance. Right. Half of Americans right. are actively avoiding the news. Yeah, I can understand this is my life is news. Yeah. And there are days when uh, there's just too much. 
Yeah. And I, you know, I don't stop reading. I don't stop going online. I don't stop watching on television. But I pull back some, and I look for a good book, or I'm doing my own writing. I just want to get away from it for a while so I can understand that. At the same time, that sort of question in polls, I'm never sure if the answers are always completely honest. Yeah. I bet if the next question was, uh, what do you think about what Trump said yesterday, they would know the answer to that question. Right. Uh, so, so I think that's instead, I think that a lot of that answer is about, well, I really hate what's going on in the news right now. I'm really disturbed by all the problems in the world. And that's what, you know, that part of that's just this overload, plug the title of Bob's book. Yes. Uh, your book. But there is overload. We would not have been aware, unfortunately, we would have only been somewhat aware, for instance, of terrible fires in Australia before. Right. We would have only been somewhat aware of the several countries around the world where right now there are insurrections. But now we're aware of all of it all the time. Yeah. In addition to the problems in our own country. Now, it's good that we're aware of them in terms of let's, let's see if we can do something about it. But at the same time, I remember growing up as a kid in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was very interested in the news. I was, I was a newspaper carrier. I already knew that I wanted to be a journalist someday. But I was only aware of some news going on around the country, around my city, around the country, around the world. Now I'm aware of everything all the time. Did you deliver the plane dealer? No, I delivered the Cleveland Press, which was now defunct. But uh, Wow. Yeah. Why do you ask about the Cleveland dealer? Well, my wife's from Cleveland. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. And yeah. so and so we're we're in Cleveland several times a year. Oh yeah, and the Plain Dealer is a surviving newspaper. Yeah. Back yeah. then the press and the Plain Dealer were neck and neck. The press afternoon, uh-huh. the Plain Dealer morning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love the afternoon papers. Yeah. They were fun. Let me ask you this. I'm not asking you what you think the Senate ought to do <laughs> in the current impeachment inquiry. Yeah. But what do you think beyond this president? What do you think will be the impact if the Senate does vote not to remove him from office? Do you see this as having an impact on the country? Beyond the politics of it, you know, obviously it'll have some impact on the next election, whichever way they go. This whole thing was, it has to have a lasting impact on the country, but not just whether or not the Senate votes to remove him from office. Obviously, if they vote to remove him from office, that has a great impact in the country. We have a new president the next day and a whole new lineup for the next election. Uh, but, but the other it, part is, uh, if they vote not yeah, to remove him, right. do we still have three independent branches of government? Because it suggests to me that if the president can simply <laughs> thumb his nose— right at the Congress, we don't. That's the good question part of it that doesn't get into uh, whether or not he should be impeached. So it's not voting not to remove him, but if they vote not to allow witnesses, then that that stonewalling has succeeded. Uh, Whereas in Watergate, that stonewalling did not succeed because everybody did testify. And in the Clinton impeachment, there was testimony. But, you know, they did not remove Clinton. They did not, they they voted not to remove Clinton. And that vote itself did not change things. So uh, that's hard to say. But Clinton did cooperate, basically. I mean, uh, yes, and yes. yeah, there was back and forth. Yes, and all. but he did. Uh, in this case, the president from the beginning right. said, I'm simply not going to right. do anything right. to help you with right. this. No, I'm not going right. to. I'm going to block all subpoenas. Right. And it seems to me that's something we're going to be dealing with for a long time. That, that's, that's quite possible. It's also been empowering of the media again in this ironic way that we talked about, because much of what you know about what actually went on came first from the news media. You know, even long before uh, they were able to, get, the House was able to gather the information it gathered. And now, once again, the New York Times has broken a story that may have an impact on impeachment that the White House knew about. The White House knew about this book. They've had it in their possession since late December, but it's the news media that's made it public. 
Lynn Downey, want to thank you for helping us get to the truth of this very important matter. Thank you. That we're all dealing with here, a situation I think we probably haven't dealt with before. Yes. I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 